0: We we're working on a series called Verses. It started back on Easter. We're talking about the divisions that are occurring within our world, within our homes, perhaps even within your own neighborhoods or life. And we want to talk about how we bring people together and reconcile the divided. And it's really been what we've been kind of examining and working on as we talk out this conversation of versus, this person versus that person, that group versus that group. And as we dive in today, it's really important to understand that we need to focus in on a conversation of reconciliation. And so today I want to begin us on a journey where last two weeks we've covered on what God has done to set a world of reconciliation through Jesus Christ, that Jesus bore our sins and He rose um, on the cross to deal with our sins. He rose from the dead to give us what we needed, that we could stand before God, and, and so that we are now reconciled with God, so, and He sends us out to be reconcilers. Now our job is to do that. We looked at the divisions that are in the church last We can kind of discuss how the gospel covers that. You can find all that on our website and the podcasts. And now we're going to start a process of reconciliation this morning, and it's but it starts with decisions. In fact, decisions are huge. Back in our our culture may be divided right now, but back 160 years ago, our culture was extremely divided. You see, there was a decision that was made 160 years ago by a Supreme Court justice named Roger Taney. A man named Dred Scott had been taken by his master, he was a slave, across to the free states, and they lived there for a little while and then brought him back down across into the slave states again. In that interchange, Dred Scott believed that he had been set free. He'd come into a free state. You can't have slaves in a free state. And so when he was brought back, he sued his master that he could be set free. He had already tried to buy his freedom, you know, and, and this, his master was just kind of know your mind kind of guy, it was just, just horrible evil. And the reality is that he came to this place where he sat now before the Supreme Court The Supreme Court ruled then against Dred Scott, and the Dred Scott decision was laid down. And Justice Roger Taney actually laid not just a ruling about free states and and slavery, but he said that all black men, free or enslaved, had no right to citizenship in the United States. And in that one act, he sealed the very inevitability of the Civil War. And the reality was that the greatest divide our nation has ever seen rolled into reality, and we went through a massive war to cleanse this um, nation of slavery. Although it would take many years later to even begin to deal with the continuing racism and the continuing uh, segregation, we've, we've been moving systematically in, I believe, a positive direction since in, when it comes to these areas. But the, the thing is, the decision is what caused the divide. And decision. Are huge. And as you and I understand decisions in our own lives, they are gigantic as well. And you say, but wait a minute, he was a Supreme Court justice. His decision is way bigger than mine. But not if you step back and think about what influenced his decision. I mean, this man didn't just create a decision out of whole cloth, he was surrounded by people, maybe family, who had made decisions about their ideas of black men and black women. They had lived in a society that had made decisions already small insignificant decisions maybe in the minds of some, but they were decisions nonetheless that influenced the nation into the direction that it went. And it's the aggregate, the growing of all those small decisions that makes the largest influences in a culture and a society. And when we talk about these small decisions, we realize it's these small decisions that oftentimes create the largest divisions in our own families, in our own marriages, with our children, even with our neighbors and our nation. And so we want to look and examine this. We're going to move forward in a conversation about what it means to bring about reconciliation. It begins by opening our hearts to one of the most difficult things that we can do, and that is to identify in our own hearts what is our own sins. So let's just stop here for a second. And let's just pray, because this is going to need God's, God's guidance in this time, because you're going to struggle. Right now, you're going to have an attack. Uh, either you're going to feel an attack in your mind that you're like, I'm judging you, or somebody's judging you here today because you have sin in your life, and it's there in your heart. Others of you, you're just not seeing your sin, and you're going to just push it out, and you're not going to think of it. No, no, we need God to open it up. God is gracious. He has brought His Son, Jesus Christ, to take our sins, to deal with them finally on the cross, to make us right with God so we can be right with each other. And so we need to ask God to open our hearts in that way. So let's do that right now as we bow our heads together. Father, we do. We come before you. Thank you that you are a gracious God. Because there is not a single person on this planet, there's not a single person in this room that can hide the truth from you of our sins. And God, that means that you have called us to deal with these now, these decisions we've made, so that we can make them right in the future. We pray that you would just help us work through this process, help our fears help, help those, um, those discomforts that will be coming in this time, and lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name, all God's children said, amen. amen. And so I want to talk about this idea of dealing with our divisions. We got to first identify our sins. If you weren't here for our first week of the conversation, you weren't here to hear that I said that sin is the root of all the divisions that we have. And you can go back to that Easter conversation and see what I mean by that. But deep down it leaves us to reaching out for whatever this world offers and from there we just fight each other to get our pleasures, our stuff or some kind of pride for our lives and it becomes combat, it becomes a war zone, it becomes a division fest. And so we need to look and examine at uh, and look at and examine our own sins. If we're going to get anywhere in the conversation of reconciliation, It starts in here, in the church. It starts in here, in your personal soul. And so as we do this, I want to tell you this isn't easy. Sin is not easy. Sin to examine isn't easy. First of all, what is sin? Sin is not just this, oh, I made a mistake kind of attitude we have today. Sin is a rebellion. As we said the last couple of weeks, sin is a rebellion against our maker's instructions and against our maker's provisions that he's given to us. He set out instructions for life. He's given us what we need. But We said, nah, you don't know what you're talking about and you can't give me what I need. So we go off and we seek it out of our own. And a very simple illustration used both weeks also is just simple proof that we're all in this together. Is that we've all lied. Nobody here hasn't lied at least you know 100 plus times in their life at some point, unless you're very young. But the reality, and maybe even then, but the reality is that for us, we've all lied. Just that's where it's at. And the one of the Ten Commandments is you should not lie. So God said it very clearly. This is not something we should do. There's your instruction. We go, nope, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I do. And we've entered into this rebellion. Now, that being said, though, it's not easy to see sin. And I think that's why it's hard to talk about it. Do you realize that you're the the blindest to yourself yourself? That we were never more blind than than when we were trying to examine our own hearts. Like, we have people walking around acting like they know who they are on the inside. And then by the time they're 30, they're out, eat, pray, love, find themselves kind of thing because they don't know who they are. Spending thousands, if not millions of dollars every year, Americans run to counselors because we don't know what's going on inside of our own souls. Isn't that true? We struggle to identify ourselves. What's going on inside? Sin is not easy to see. And so we're blinded to it. And this is honestly simply because of some ways that we're aimed. Notice the proverb. It says, people may be right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their heart. And what it's saying is that we think we're right. We think we've got this figured out. We usually make decisions. And when we make a decision at the time, we think it's the good and best decision. We, we, we usually say if you'd go back to that time period, you'd have made the same decision with the same information because it was the best decision you could make at the time. And what we mean by that is this. They've interviewed um, death row inmates, people who are willing to admit they had done it, and only those guys. And when they talked to them, inevitably what they found was these, all these people believed they had done something that was good when they did whatever murder that they did. Either they believed they were getting a vengeance that was right that they had been kept from, or they were ridding the world of some evil group of people that shouldn't have been allowed to be alive in the first place. And the reality is all of them had justified their decision as if it was good. That's all of us. All of us make good decisions. Other, You don't go like, that's a bad decision. I think I'll do it anyway. Nobody does that. It would cause you harm, and you know that. Now, sometimes we go, oh, you know, that's, I really shouldn't do this, but I don't really care. Right now, it's going to help me. And you're thinking of some other good, like, you know you shouldn't eat the whole chocolate cake, but you decide to go ahead and do it anyway. You know, That's a different kind of a situation. You still somehow think it's good for you to receive pleasure than it is for you to restrict yourself. We make decisions because we're oriented to try to make good decisions. The problem is, give yourself a week, give yourself a year, give yourself a day, you look back and you go, that was a bad decision. And we say that was a mistake or something like that. But the reality is, at the time, it's always a good decision. That makes it hard to see your sin in the moment. Makes it hard to see and examine your heart and realize, I have this sin." The other reason is because we walk in darkness, the scriptures indicate. In fact, in Ephesians, it says that the minds are full of darkness. And this is speaking of people who aren't walking with God. Because God is called the light. light. People who are walking in darkness are people who aren't walking with God. And that sounds really offensive, but I want to pause for a second and just explain. The Bible is saying it's not just ignorance. It's that literally we're lost in darkness. It's like you're blind. You cannot see your way around. When you're lost in a city or you're lost in somewhere, it means that you can't figure out where you need to go. It means you don't know what turn is left or right. Now, we live in a culture that can't figure out whether a person is a male or a female. We live in a culture that cannot figure out whether there's truth or alternative facts to things. Does this sound like a confused group of people? I think it does, and that's not to be offensive. It's just the reality that we have a lot of things we don't know how to answer. Why do we exist? We're not so sure. Are we animals or are we special? We're not so sure. Are you just a machine, or do you have a soul? We're not so sure. We are lost. We don't know the direction. We walk in darkness. And when you walk in darkness, you can't see your heart. In fact, it's because it gets hardened. You don't feel the guilt. You don't feel the pain. You don't realize the sin you've made at the time you do it. Because our hearts have been hardened against them. If you've ever sinned long enough, there may have been that first time you lied and you felt a little guilty. The second time was easier. The third time was more. Until now, you just don't even think about it. The first drink was fun. The second one was a little guilty. The third one, eventually you're drunk. enough times you don't even think about it. And somebody says you're an alcoholic. And you go, no, I'm not. That's how blind we can be to our own sin. And so the reality is we need somebody to tell us. We need somebody outside to identify for us what's going on in our souls. Thank God God's done that. In fact, Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians a very powerful list of of sins that we can examine our lives for so that when we kind of enter into our our journey of checking ourselves, you have some, there's a lot of these lists, but this is one of the most we can have an examination. And so check this list out. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, you, you have a list here. Now, this list is not for the pastor to use as a blood tool. It was not given to me so I can pick up my Bible and go, you're all evil and I'm so righteous. That's not what's going on here. I'm destroyed by this list every day, just as all of us are. So so note that, that, that I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the same zone here. So, But let's look at these. It's important. If we're going to examine our hearts, we need something to say, well, what is sin again? You know, give, give me some indication. And, start, and here's what Paul says. You follow the desires of your sinful nature. The results are very clear. Sexual immorality. This is any form of sex outside of the marriage, bonds, that would include adultery, um, premarital sex. I mean, all kinds of different kinds of things are categorized under this. If you want the list of it, you can go to the book of Leviticus and take a look. It's in there. But this is the shorthand for what they were talking about in the Old Testament. All the different forms of bad ways people have had sex. He says, look, that's sexual immorality. Impurity is a bad-thinking mind. It's a dirty mind, dirty jokes, sullen ideas, cruel behavior in your head, where you're laughing at the bad things. You may not do them, but you think them and enjoy them. Or you think them, and you know you're thinking them. That's impurity. Lustful pleasures is another way of saying greed. Whether it's aimed at sex and pornography, whether it's aimed at having more money and stuff, or whether it's having to eat the whole chocolate cake, the whole thing is lust attaches itself to various things that you can't let go of. And so there is these lustful pleasures, these desires you want to hold on to. Idolatry is to put anything before God. It may be, they. I'm going to go do my sports thing before I'm ever going to go to church. It may be, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put something in front of my dedicated time I was with the Lord. Maybe it's i got a I got a special meeting or, you know, whatever. Idolatries are found in the heart, and there are things that we put before God knowingly because we think we'll get something from it that God wouldn't meet us with. Sorcery is different. Sorcery is in the involvement with the demonic, whether it's some spirit guy from Mexico, as is popular right now, or whether it was when I was a kid looking, you know, saying Bloody Mary in the mirror or things like that. Okay, okay, there we go. Some people remember that one. The reality… Yeah, that was weird. Oh, anyway, 80s, you know, fun. Anyways, the reality is sorcery is involved from there to tarot cards, to engaging yourself in the, in the playing of, of any form of spirituality that you're controlling the demons. Now, I'm not talking about Harry Potter silly Latin terms. I'm talking about true, serious magic, in which you're engaged with the spiritual world, Ouija boards, calling these things out, all the way to actually involving yourself in seance or other things in order to see the demonic work. This includes the use of drugs like pot. The word sorcery is actually the term pharmaciesia, which we get our word pharmacology from the use of drugs to enhance a heightened state in order to receive spiritual power or any other form of thing is considered sorcery. Medicine is a whole different subject. And there's a, there's a whole category in Scripture on medicine. This is a different thing. And so that, that's that category. Hostility, we'll just plug this one together. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, and outbursts of anger. Hey, do you, have a, do you have control over your rage? Do you have control over your jealousy? Do you have control over your behavior? When somebody gets in your way of what you want, do you get angry? Do you lash out? How are you doing on the freeway? These are the kinds of things that exist in our hearts and our lives. When your child looks at you and says, no, are you like, <laughs> That's me, with that very sound, actually. And the reality is that we have this kind of thing going on. Selfish ambition. Is it all about you and you climbing your ladder? About you making the difference? I've got to be at the top. Distention. Whispering and gossiping about other people making sure it's stuff. Are you reading gossip papers? Are you grabbing and watching the gossip shows on television? Because you've got to be on in the, you know. Are you scanning through your Instagram to find out how everybody's doing? Or your Facebook just to get more info? Division actually literally causing splits and breaks within the church or families or other places. Envy, which is to look around and say, they got something I don't have. They've got a privilege I don't have. They've got a thing I don't have. they got stuff I don't have. Envy is driving our culture crazy. Drunkenness and wild parties. Are you here this morning? Or this probably applies more to our third service group because if they were there last night, they want third service, but... um, I'm just saying. Unless you, unless it was Friday. But the look, getting drunk and running around to the wild parties, is not a call of the Christian. It's not what we're supposed to be engaged in. And other sins like these, for example, one of the big sins that that we all don't look at, because right now, if you made it through that list, and you're thinking, I'm doing really, really good compared to all these people laughing, because, you know, laugh is a way of actually saying you did it. And it's like, you know, you've got what God hates the most, according to the Proverbs. Proverbs says that there are six, no, seven things he hates. And the first one is haughty eyes. He who looks down his nose at someone else because he thinks he's superior be careful. We all have things to confess. What I would suggest you do is in the midst of this message, if God starts nailing you with something, you write it down. If God's whacking you over the head with something you've hidden in your soul, you get it out. Because here's the problem, we all have to begin to move through reconciliation by identifying where we have the sin and the problem. That's That's the only first move we have lest we become arrogant, lest we become self-righteous and Pharisees. And then we're just going to hide in inauthenticity. So God's very clear with us that if you're going to live this way, where it's like that, don't expect to enter into God's kingdom. Don't expect heaven. If you're going to live this way and just bank on Jesus in the end, that doesn't work. Jesus is not a get-out-everything-free card He's a transformation and a reconciliation to God so we can live for God. It's very different. And so as we examine this, we begin to also realize, guys, that it's not just individual sins that we need to worry about. There's also a sense that there's corporate sins that we need to worry about. And you say, what? Evangelicals, we're not good at talking about corporate sins. We love the individual sin. We talk about that. But there are corporate sins that we are all guilty of together give you an example where we see this in the book of Romans chapter 5 verse 17. It says, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. Does anybody think that's fair? That because Adam sins, everybody that is past him is going to die now. Everybody receives the punishment because of what Adam did. We're all spiritually dead and we're all going to guarantee to die because of Adam's sin. Not because of your own sin, but because of what Adam did. This is called original sin. It's a hot topic in, in theology, debated constantly. But here, let me just explain why it's a hot topic. See, we as Americans, we think of each other as individuals. We're all individuals. And so we all think my sin is mine. Your sin is yours. There is no crossing the streets. We deal with my own sin. The problem is that's not how sin works. Sin always affects other people. Always. It is never an isolated situation. And so when somebody says it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, nothing exists in that category. There is no action that exists that doesn't influence or affect someone else in your life or in this world. And so what we realize is that we are very responsible in all these cases. You go, this still doesn't make sense. Adam's an individual. I wasn't there. Why am I being punished? And that's because the Bible has a concept of humanity that's different than our, our, our way of growing up, which is individualism. No, it is individual in some sense, but it thinks of human beings like we think of cookie dough. Anybody love cookie dough? Oh, man, when, some, when my wife makes some good cookie dough, I'm just sitting there like staring at it with all my kids surrounding the bowl. Mm. And what do you do? You reach in, you take a pinch of that cookie dough, maybe it's chocolate chip cookie dough with peanut butter chips in it. Mm. Anyway, and you put it in your mouth and you go, oh, and if it's good, what do we say? Oh, that's good cookie dough. Isn't that odd? No, I should say that's a good taste of cookie dough. Because it's an individual piece of cookie dough. How come that individual piece of cookie dough can represent the whole of the cookie dough? Well, because it's made of all the same things. Exactly. And the way the ancients viewed it is because you grew up in the same community around the same people, you you grew up in the same culture, you grew up with the same ingredients, and therefore, when they're all mixed together, you probably have that in you. Give you an example. In the ancient world, if somebody came into the town and was living in sin, they would kick them out of the community. Why? Because they thought of it as like putting just a little bit of poo poo in the midst of the cookie dough. (laughs) Until I got kids, I called it poo poo. You know, that's like. But imagine that. Some guy walks up and goes, Little little doggy turd, pink. Want some cookie dough? All of us would be like, I pass. I'm good even if that pinch of cookie dough had no poop in it, you would still pass on the cookie dough. Because just a little bit mixed in means the whole is now destroyed. A little sin in this community of Christ can taint the entirety. And that's what the Scriptures say. That you are not just an individual, you are unified and bound together by the Holy Spirit and that sin inside the community affects the entirety of Olive Branch. That we affect each other. That we bring about problems with each other. Now, does that mean we're going to be perfect? No, 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 no. It it means that we're living in it, we're going to be arrogant about it, it's going to affect and destroy. It's like mixing that stuff in. And that's not how God intends it. It's not where to do. And in fact, it affects family. Uh, Think about the fact that in my family, one of the problems that I have is, is unfortunately, yes, I have inside of me a a monster that appears when my children say things like, "We'll we'll go clean your room." I want to clean my room and I'm on them, and there's, you know, it's time out time, and you're going to be there for the rest of your life. And I just can't believe this. And I finally realized bad dad showed up. I got to calm down, turn around, repent from bad dad. I'm sorry. And you know, that's not how a father should act. Lo and behold, an hour later, my children are hanging out together, and the children are all at each other going like, well, you did this. And I'm like, where's this coming from? It's coming from me. Because I've set the example. I've influenced the children. The children are living out my very example. My selfishness shows up in my children. My greed will show up in my children. My arrogance will show up in my children. Because we affect each other. Alcoholism is passed down. Addiction is passed down. So are other sins because sin is not isolated ever. It's corporate. And that doesn't just stay there. It spreads into your community. It flows all the way out into your nation. There's this weird story in the book of Joshua in which this guy Achan has stolen just a little bit of stuff out of this place called Jericho. Jericho was, had, they'd marched around seven times around. It fell, the walls fell down and they marched in. They were supposed to burn and destroy everything, keep nothing and Achan goes, oh, I don't forget that. Boom, this is some good gold. He stuffs it in a bag, hides it under his tent. Puts a little bit of poo-poo in the in the cookie dough. And God goes, uh-uh. And so in the next situation, when they come upon the city of Ai, which was a much smaller city, something should have easily, easily taken, they were routed and they were harmed. And, this, and the nation was being judged for the sin of one man, Achan. And Joshua was like, what's going on? So they cast lots, find Achan and judge Achan. And then God goes, okay, we're good now. Because Achan's sin affected the entire nation. One man affecting a nation? Absolutely. Our sins affect our nation. You see, when we pour in our tax dollars, it goes to killing children, whether we like it or not. Whether the embryo children or whether in the womb children or what, it goes to the destruction of human life. We can pour our tax dollars in and it can go into the direction of greed. Greed. And things that we don't stand for or care about. We can pour our money into corporations that are willingly, like Disney, willingly producing pornography because it gives them a better bottom line. And we go, well, they're adults. They can figure it out. Jesus said if you cause someone to sin, it's better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the ocean than to be somebody who tempts people to sin. That's a frightening thought that our money goes to encourage these kind of things. You go, well, what do we do about that? We'd have to leave the world. No, no, I get that. Our job is to acknowledge and confess and deal with corporate sin and to acknowledge sometimes we're locked down. It's the American way or it's the Chinese way or it's the whatever you want to call it way. Our culture has sin, and we are not to stand by and just go, well, do as the Romans do. No, we, we need to stand up and try whatever we can to be a people who lovingly care and lead others away in reconciliation to God. That's a hard thing, and corporate sin is a difficult thing, but it starts at least with acknowledgement and confession. And right there, some of you guys are like, ah, oh, I don't like that. I don't like it either. But it's a reality. And God will indeed look upon all these pieces. Now, how do we get through all this stuff? How do we deal with all these pieces? Because we're still blind to ourselves. Does it take your spouse turning to you and saying, here's your sins, you can do that. And that would be very easy. In fact, I recommend next time your spouse turns to you or your children turn to you and tell you your sin, just write it down. Don't fight back at first. Take it in. Because they live with you. If you're a single person and you're not living with people, go find as many friends, married and single, as possible. Get them in your life so they can start pointing out stuff in you. Because God has given us two routes to be, to be holy in this world. Marriage is one and singleness is the other. Singleness needs community as much as marriage needs community. Because it's in the community that you discover and you see your sin because sin is corporate and it always needs others. Which is no wonder then, as we deal with it, Others can show us that, but ultimately God's got to convict us and reveal it to us in our hearts. In Psalm 139, we get this prayer. And this is the one you need to write down a circle in your notes, take home, because this is the prayer we need to pray. At the end of Psalm 139, it says, search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. Now, that's a bold prayer. And when God starts to reveal that, he'll reveal it through other people. He'll reveal it by guilt in your heart. Your heart will soften to the things you've done wrong, and you need to get a journal or get something and write it down so you can begin to work through this confession stuff, because that's where we turn. You see, the next step in this, as he seals, is to deal with divisions. We have to confess them. We have to confess our sin. We have to lay it out. And this is the scariest thing I'm going to tell you all day long. Because it's one thing to identify your sins. Some of you haven't written them down because you're afraid somebody's going to look on your piece of paper. And you're like, "Eh, I'm writing that down. You're putting it in your phone hoping that app actually doesn't save to the iCloud kind of thing. Because you don't want somebody to find out, no, here's where we start with confession. We have to deal with this. If all sin is corporate, then it begins with confession, and confession starts with confessing it to God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. He says, I'm going to help you out if you'll confess it to me. But confess here means to say the same thing as. You need to call sin, sin. If you call it a mistake or you call it something else, you're letting yourself off the hook. Sin is not some simple thing. It's a rebellion against God. It's not an oops. And here's the problem. We don't think of sin as bad. We think of it as a religious thing that's, oh, people are trying to make me feel guilty. No, but stop for a second. Think of what sin is doing. I have a friend right now who's dealing with an identity theft situation. For some reason, her identity was stolen, and somebody's gone to college with her identity. And the government is now garnishing her Social Security which is all she gets, because this person decided to go to college. She's sitting there going like, man, if I only had the degree, this would be worth it. But she, you know, if you've ever had your identity stolen, it's horrific. It's awful. It's angering. It's injustice to the maximum. And it should make you mad. Has anybody had their identity stolen? Throw your hand up real quick. Somebody's done some kind of ID theft on you. Okay. it takes forever to get the credit card cleaned up, all the mess done. It is annoying. And yet every day we steal God's identity. He's given us his image and he's put it in us and we turn around and use his credentials and his identity and we say, God, here I'm God and I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm God and I'm a greedy guy. I'm God, I'm a lust-filled person. I'm God and I love to I be an idolater. And God goes, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, no, it's not me. So God is concerned when we lie. No matter how small the lie because we misrepresent God. He made us to be like Him. So sin is an affront to God. It's an offense immediately to Him. And then it's an offense to each other. It destroys relationships. The wages of sin is death, death in your marriage, death with your children, death with your family members, death in all these areas. It dissolves like an acid the bonds of all relationships. And if you've gone through those, it's the root of all of those divisions has been some form of sin. Sin. And so we need to come to God and confess our sins to him. So he's faithful and just, he doesn't kick you out. He's like, I don't love you, get it. No, he says, I love you, come here. I've given you my son, Jesus. He's willing to take all of your sin and give you everything that you need to be right with me. Come here, I will cleanse you, I will wash you clean. That's the way to live as a Christian. Confess your sins, identify them, get them out before God. Let him begin to change and deal with them in your heart. But that's one way. That's the start. The second confession is you need to confess to each other, to other people in the church. In fact, in James chapter 5, it says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. This healing, I believe, is necessary for some of you. You are sick because you are holding your sin in. There's a young lady that I have heard about recently that my friend was counseling, and as he was telling me the story, he, 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 he met this girl who had gone from straight A's to straight F's within like a quarter. They're like, what is going on? This girl is known for being intelligent and smart and all these things. And for a year and a half, she lived in depression and fear, stayed in her house with anxiety disorders, all these things going on. She'd seen psychiatrists and been on, you know, taking drugs, doing all this stuff. Finally, a year and a half later, she's sitting in his office and tells him, yeah, I had slept with this guy a year and a half ago, I think, and realized that that had destroyed her self-image and who she believed herself to be, dissolved her so down or devalued her so incredibly because he broke up with her and called her all kinds of names and things that she went through systemic physical problems because she wouldn't tell her parents. She couldn't. She couldn't. And in the end, when she did... It was healing. And he told her, it's like, you know what confession is, you know you, what you're doing is like? It's like pouring an antiseptic over that wound. You got to get it cleaned up and so you can keep bandaging it. You got to get it cleaned out so it can heal. That you've let it fester and get worse and worse and worse. You've got to be honest. Confession heals. Some of you have not confessed to anybody because you're so afraid of what it's going to do. And it's sitting on you. God's hand and weight is upon you. Let me read to you how in Psalm 1, 139, David puts it, or sorry, Psalm 32. I always, Psalm thirty one thirty nine was the last one. Psalm 32, he puts it this way. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man with whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the, by the heat of summer. No energy, wiped out, disease infested. Some of you are not willing to confess, and yet God is on you, and you will not let up because you are so deathly afraid of what's going to happen. Because if you confess that adulterous affair, you believe your marriage is gone. If you're going to confess that theft, you know you're going to lose your job. If you're going to confess that situation, dramatic situation is going to reveal you. And you think by holding on to it, you're protecting yourself. No, you're making it worse. Jesus says, what you hide in the closet will be shouted on the rooftops. And when it's discovered, it's even worse. There is no secret you can hide. It's better to begin with confession. It's better to own it and deal with it now. No, the consequences are not easy. That's why you confess to somebody else first who is safe. When you confess to a Christian, as a Christian, you confess to another Christian. And you confess to a Christian who is also the same sex as you. Okay? And you tell them the truth, the whole truth. Get it out. You need to do that with a safe person, an older, mature Christian. Don't Go to your baby, brand new, you know, buddy who, who just came to Jesus. That's not going to help them, and it's not going to help you. You need to go to somebody who's walked a little further down the path than you so you can confess. That's why people inevitably go to priests in the Catholic Church and set up that way to have a place of confession here. You confess to a brother or, or a sister who is older than you, walked further along than you, that you can get it open into daylight and begin to get that cleansing. Now, the next portion to that is this. If you receive a confession, be careful because there's two ways you can go wrong. One, you may struggle with that sin yourself and find yourself floating into it, making light of it or something of the like. Don't do that. Instead, you need to be ready to receive it with grace, because the second one is you can become haughty and sin yourself. and Look down your nose at this person. Well, I'm so glad I'm not like you. (laughs) That's awful. If you catch yourself doing that, maybe you just say, you know, I may not be the right person for you to tell this to. And the reality is that we can all sin when confession is given to us, and we need to be careful. What it is the answer is is to turn and pray for the person. That's what we do. You pray for him, and God brings healing, and brings a healing sometimes physically, and very much in your soul. Now, <clears throat> once we've confessed this, once we've dealt with this, we should make right our sins where we can means engaging those people we've sinned against. In Matthew chapter 5, if you want to go there for the last portion, we're going to look at a few verses here. The ending of verse 21, you can open it up there. Again, if you don't have a Bible, they're available on page 810. But Jesus deals with this starting in verse 21. He actually is talking about anger. And he sets it up with our anger and he says, look, the Old Testament says you're liable to judgment if you murder, but he actually tells you if you're angry with somebody, call them a name. You're liable of judgment. And then he says, so, in conclusion, if you've offended and broken with somebody... If you're offering your gift at the altar, verse 23 says, and remember that your brother has something against you, what do you do? So if you have this guy who's, who's done something, and you're on your way to church, you're on your way to praise the very Jesus who's reconciled you to God, and you're not reconciled with your brother, with somebody who else around you, leave your gift there. Note this is with another Christian. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Hey, he would rather you get right with another Christian than you to come in here and pretend like you're right with Jesus. If you're in here praising God, going, ooh, I love you, Jesus, and you got a line of Christians who you got stuff to deal with, put your hands down, go out early and go deal with the stuff, and then come back free with Christ. Now, that doesn't mean it's not always going to work that way, but that's the priority Jesus puts it at. He says, man, it's far more important that you make it right with your brothers than you come in here and pretend that you're giving a, a praise to God. So Jesus is very clear. He says, and secondly, with non-Christians in this sense, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge of the garden put in the prison. Say, you'll, you'll never get out until you pay the last penny. And his point is simply this. If somebody's accused you of something, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's a coworker, get it dealt with. Immediately. Don't wait. Don't be all defensive. Like, ah, no, if you're hiding something or if it's in a, really a lie, just press in. Say, hold on, hold on, what did I do to make you think I did that? Hey, I didn't mean to offend you. Deal with it. The worst response is to be angry. The worst response is to be defensive. That implies guilt. Many of our marriages would be saved if we would just simply listen to what the other person is trying to point out. Now, don't point it out meanly. Yeah, peace. No, don't do that. But seek to build each other up. It's in this area that we begin to be able to produce healing amongst each other. Go to them. And maybe it's going to look like you have to write a letter. Maybe it's you show up and actually confess and admit, I've done this wrong against you, and I apologize. Maybe it's, yeah, you've got to pay something back. You took that money a long time ago, and it was in your mind, whatever, and they've been complaining to you for years that you haven't paid them back. Pay them back. Get it dealt with quickly. Because this is about the reconciliation with God, we can reconcile others. We can't have these divisions. And yeah, even in some cases, it's that we as Christians ought to stand up and reconcile corporate and national sins. Nehemiah did that He stood up, even though he was not alive, to have sinned the way they did before the exile. He says, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. And there he takes the sin on himself and takes the corporate nature of the nation on himself and confesses on behalf of Israel. And God used him to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and bring back Israel into the nation. Sometimes God's just looking for his church to stand up and say, yes, we have sinned. We, 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 have, we have been racist, we've been greedy, we have agreed to things we should have never agreed to. In fact, fascinatingly, 160 years on the Supreme, later on the Supreme Court steps stood a man named Charlie Taney and a woman, I got to get this right, named Lynn Jackson, both great-great-grandchildren of the Supreme Court Justice and Dred Scott himself. And, this, and Charlie Taney apologized on behalf of his family, And what had happened to the nation for the Dred Scott decision. And you know what Lynn Jackson did? She came up, gave him a huge hug and said, on behalf of all African Americans who love God, I accept this apology. I think we all know what she does on Sunday morning, don't we? See, that's called reconciliation. And she's opened the door for reconciliation in an area that was the most broken time period in our culture. We too can be people of great reconciliation, but it starts with acknowledging and confessing our own sin. It's not easy, but healing and healthy. Would you bow your heads with me. Father, thank you that we would have an opportunity to begin to examine these things. and right now, I ask that you would indeed open our hearts up, that we would be ready, Lord, as we, as this time comes now that we would be ready to indeed take this moment to confess as we prepare ourselves to be with you, as we prepare ourselves to be right with others. We prepare ourselves for reconciliation. God, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Will you open us up where we need to be opened and allow us to be honest, even though we may be scared. We choose the truth with you over any fear. So now in this music, in this time, God, as we're singing, convict us, we pray in Jesus' name.